Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And today is the 6th of December and the time is 9 o'clock. It's 2022. And we're going to be speaking today about a maritime disaster which happened exactly 105 years ago. And we'll be about 4 minutes and 30 odd seconds into our recording when this thing happened literally 105 years to the day. So what am I speaking about? I'm talking about the Halifax explosion. Now, if you haven't heard about this before, I'll give you a quick oversight of it to let you understand what you're getting involved in listening to this one. And then we'll go through it uh, blow by blow and understand exactly how it happened and what were the ramifications. So on the 6th of December 1917, obviously the First World War is underway and provisions for war are being amassed in North America and sent over to Europe to help with the war effort. A vessel entering Halifax Harbour, which has a section which is very narrow, made contact with a vessel which was exiting the harbour. The two vessels collided at a very slow speed, like just a couple of knots. But the problem was that the inbound vessel, the SS Mont Blanc, was carrying a full cargo of explosives, of, uh, of dynamite, of uh, toluene, of uh, all sorts of flammable materials, far beyond really what it should have been carrying, um, what was even safe to carry at that time with the war effort uh, under full, full steam. Um, and unfortunately, a fire began as the two vessels extricated themselves from each other. The IMO was the outbound vessel, the Mont Blanc was the inbound vessel. The Mont Blanc was the vessel with all of the explosives on board and as the IMO pulled its bow out of the side of the um, cargo hold for the Mont Blanc, sparks ignited toluene which had been stored in barrels on deck which had been damaged by the relatively gentle impact. That fire started to spread and the toluene started to pour down into the cargo hold and thereupon it ignited the entire cargo in one shot. Uh, uh, an equivalent energy of roughly 2.9 kilotons. This is something like 250 times more powerful than the U.S. military's largest uh, present-day bomb, which is the Moab. And to put it in perspective, it's about 20% of the yield of the um, the bomb, the Fat Boy bomb, which dropped over Hiroshima. So we're talking about a massive explosion. Um, now we understand it to be the largest non-nuclear explosion ever in the history or man-made non-nuclear explosion in the history of the world. Obviously there have been natural explosions, um, volcanoes which have exploded, Mount St. Helens, Krakatoa, those kind of things which have been larger. But in terms of man-made materials igniting, this is the largest non-nuclear explosion the effect of this was catastrophic. Um, the period of time that we're looking at, it's winter time as it is right now here in Nova Scotia. It's very, very cold. Um, the houses in that part, this part of the world at that time and still now are all made of wood. And the area where the vessel exploded, where the Mont Blanc exploded, is in what's referred to as the Narrows. And it's only about a mile bet uh, between houses at that point. Um, across the water. So the effect of this explosion was catastrophic and the numbers now are that about 2,000 people died and about 9,000 were injured directly after the 
catastrophe occurred, there was a blizzard. And so although people were still trapped under collapsed houses, although people were still very badly injured, uh, a, a blizzard came in and uh, then they couldn't, um, they couldn't get people out from under the houses and they, and they froze to death uh, where they were trapped. So a, a huge, huge um, event in the history of Nova Scotia, as you can imagine, but coming from a very simple um, collision regulation confusion that's 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 what it comes down to into the end and we're going to have a look at that a little bit this podcast doesn't really deal with uh you know i know that there's a, a great market for people doing things like crime stories and horror and all that kind of stuff i'm not into that i'd like to take from it what can be um can be garnered from learning about the what happened on the water and understanding it um it is the largest maritime disaster um the the titanic obviously you've got 1600 people dying in the water um, which is in its own way uh, something we need to learn from. Perhaps that's the, uh, the, the the basis for another podcast in the future. But this one today occurring literally 105 years ago. Um, in fact, in the next couple of seconds, it's uh, literally 105 years ago this happened. Um, and 9.04 and 35 seconds, um, the clocks literally stopped in Halifax uh, 105 years ago. So how did it how did it come about? It came about because of a series of events that all had their own little red flag attached, as these things always do, and uh, things just developed and developed um, into a, 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 a situation which then unfortunately was uh, of massive consequence. The starting point for this is to understand the layout of Halifax Harbour, which I can describe, I think, quite easily through the, the, the medium here on the podcast. There's an outer harbour and then a set of narrows and then an inner harbour. And throughout wartime, uh, First World War and the Second World War, Halifax Harbour has been the stepping off point for a lot of convoys that were heading out across the Atlantic. Now, I have regularly crossed the Atlantic sailing, um, going from Newfoundland across to the UK. Um, that's exactly 1904 miles. I know that for a fact. I've done it so many times. I've put the uh, info into the computer. Um Halifax is not much further than that to the tune of about another 300 miles as a crow flies. So you're talking about the, the, the narrowest possible points between uh, North America, which was supplying all of the gear that was helping out with the, the war in Europe. Um, St. John's, Newfoundland is uh, another place that people stepped off from. Certainly that's where the uh, security screens that were crossing the Atlantic would leave off. Uh, St. John's, Newfoundland is another kind of harbour with a narrow entrance and a, and a larger inner interior basin, but it wasn't so big that convoys could form up before departing. What happened in Halifax that was so good is that the, the inner part of the harbour, it's kind of like a figure of eight. You've got an outer harbour that you access through the, uh, the uh, initial approaches to the harbour. That opens up and then it narrows down. That's where the city is. And then it opens up again into a big interior basin a couple of miles from the sea easy to protect with submarine nets, easy to protect with gun batteries, but large enough that um, a convoy of ships could actually form up inside the harbour and then come out with and pick up their security screens in the outer harbour and then they're already in their defensive configuration before they take on the U-boat threat in the North Atlantic. That was happening as early as the First World War and it was developed into a much slicker system in the Second World War. But always Halifax Harbour has been a point of refuge 
for sailors trying to get in out of the rough weather and it's because of that uh, inner harbour and of course in the wartime the threat was not just the weather it was the u-boats as well so at this point though we're not talking about um we're not talking about convoys of ships but we are talking about ships which are stopping in and backwards and forwards with both the daily local um, business of the harbour that you might imagine and then these wartime vessels which are starting to come in and out it's uh, 1917 the war's been going on in Europe at this point already for uh, four years no, three years big upon and um, there's a big push there's all sorts of munitions and machinery and people and what have you they're coming up from North America into Halifax and then set off from there across the Atlantic so out the entrance to the the harbor was protected by the entrance of the inner harbor was protected by um, submarine nets and these are massive buoys uh, buoys holding um, uh, big steel nets if you think of the front of the um, uh, a u-boat a classic uh, uh, type 21 u-boat uh, german design it's got that almost like sawtooth uh, shape rising up out of the bow that goes up to the like the forward mast essentially and then wires that go from the forward mast to the top of the sail and then down behind and they are so that they can inch their way under or through submarine nets that was the concept although it never really worked they always got um, snagged in them because the hydroplanes get snagged but uh, that was the idea and it was because these nets were such a um, uh, impressive way of keeping uh, 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 submarines out of areas you didn't want them well these nets were opened and closed on a daily basis and they were opened and closed so that uh, other vessels can come and go now what that created was a schedule which was then limiting a lot of the activity in the harbor um, the first of the vessels that we need to discuss here is the uh, SS IMO which had sailed from the Netherlands en route to New York to take on uh, relief supplies for Belgium and when you ever see uh, videos about this uh, event if you go and search a few out as I've done over the last couple of days knowing that this was coming you'll see it says literally Belgium relief on the side of the ship it was chartered and it was under the command of Harken from the ship arrived in Halifax I'm, now I'm getting this information directly from Wikipedia which is of course a, uh, uh, a source which you must question always because anybody can change what's on here but I don't think there's any particular reason why anyone's trying to change the details and there's so much information elsewhere about this that um, it was very easy for me to see that this is a good clearly laid out way that I could find my way through this story for you so um, the ship arrived in Halifax on the 3rd of December for neutral inspection and spent two days in the Bedford Basin awaiting refueling supplies. So she's inside um, the inner, inner part of this basin. Between her and the open ocean are the Narrows and then the Outer Harbour. The Outer Harbour is open to the sea, but the Narrows has got these nets across. And she's waiting for coal bunkers before she sets off to Belgium with her relief supplies. She'd been given clearance to leave the port on the 5th of November, but it was delayed because these coal bunkers were delayed. And uh, so she couldn't take on her bunkers until the afternoon. That'd be a huge effort. Remember these ones back in the day, they'd have like coal doors on the side of the ship that would be opened. The big barge would come alongside and they would literally start shoveling hundreds and hundreds of tons of coal into the ship. So this was going to take a little while. So she's only just getting her... Um, bunkers alongside in the afternoon she's not able to meet the schedule for the nets and get outside into the outer harbor ready for her own departure on her own schedule she gets essentially trapped inside the harbor the bunkers are late and the gates uh, the the nets are closed on her okay so um 
the French cargo ship, uh, which is the SS Mont Blanc. Now, she's arriving from New York late on the 5th of December, and she's under the command of Captain Lemadec. The vessel's fully loaded with explosives, TNT, pyric acid, and the highly flammable fuel benzol and gun cotton. She's intended to join a slow convoy, convoy sorry, gathering in Bedford Basin, readying to depart for Europe, but was too late to enter the harbour before the nets were raised. So we've got two different vessels here who have now got two um, imperatives. One of them going into the evening of December the 5th, last night, 105 years ago. She really needs to get out and get going, but she can't because the nets are closed. And another vessel trying to get in to get into position, ready to join this uh, slow convoy. Um, she is uh, now stuck outside the nets. Okay, not uh, no no great issue yet, but we've got our first little red flag here, which is that both captains, both Captain From and Captain Lemadec, both have something in their mind that they kind of wanted to do. I get into the harbour or get out of the harbour, and now they can't. Ships carrying dangerous cargo were not allowed into the harbour before the war, but the risks posed by the German submarines had resulted in a relaxation of the regulations. And that's going to become very important. Because of this narrowing in the centre of the harbour, um, it was kind of obvious that you wouldn't really want to have ships carrying explosives so close to the population. The, the exact details of the harbour in Halifax are easy for you to go and look up, of course, on any uh, you know, mapping or, or charting system. But um, the city of Halifax is actually divided into two parts. There's Halifax and there's Dartmouth. They function have always and still function as basically one city but to the to the north east is um, Dartmouth and then to the uh, south west is uh, is Halifax and they're connected by bridges these days which makes it very easy to go backs and forwards but there's a massive proximity when you're on one side and you're looking at the other side you can see the people it's not like it's a big distance it's it's kind of like along the lines of Sydney Harbour or um, or New York Harbour or something like that. It's, that's why these harbours were chosen as uh, well as harbours by our maritime ancestors because they've got close proximity to the sea. You can get the ships right to the logistics services, the trains, and these days the trucks that get everything on and off. So harbours often are very close to in close proximity to dwellings and uh, there was already at this point 105 years ago or a bit more let's say 110 years ago rules in places that these big uh, explosives laden vessels um, couldn't come in and at that time it's good to remember also that it was the infancy of us blowing things up yeah we've been using gunpowder and what have you for a long time but a lot of the chemicals a lot of the quantities of stuff this was all new this hadn't really kind of been like this before um and so the threat of these uh, these vessels potentially exploding was very well understood. So they already had rules to stop this, but it's a war. We've got to be careful with those submarines. So here we are. Let's let's get these vessels inside, get them into convoy, and get them out safely. Navigating into or out of the Bedford Basin required passage through a strait called the Narrows, and I'd like to say that's also has always been called that, even by the Mi'kmaq, who are the uh, native. Canadian people who lived here before who were displaced by um, settlers coming to this part of the world but even they recognized that this part of the harbor was called the Narrows that's really traditionally its name. Ships were expected to keep close to the side of the channel situated on their starboard side now we all know that um, is uh, is still the way that we kind of go down a channel now I was just looking last night at some uh, images of uh, US naval vessels getting into a pretty close quarters situation going in and out of a, a tight channel. I think it was down in Georgia. 
Um, it's, uh, it's still a rule. It's always been a rule. You stay to the right. Um, they pass oncoming vessels port to port, red to red, your red side lights to your their red side lights. Very, very nice, easy way to understand what uh, uh, is going to happen in a passing situation. Um, ships are restricted to a speed of five knots within the harbor. Okay, so we've got this, the red flag of two captains with two imperatives that they want to carry out that they're somewhat thwarted on. We've got the red flag of the fact that these explosive laden vessels are now inside of the harbor. We have the red flag of the fact that this is a very narrow section of a harbor. And we have the fact that these uh, vessels, you can see what's going to happen. They're going to end up in a, uh, a situation where they're passing each other in a narrow channel. Flags are already up. And yet, of course, 105 years ago, no one realized what was going to happen next. Okay, so the IMO, the SS IMO, which is the outbound vessel, was granted clearance to leave the Bedford Basin by signals from the guard ship HMCS Acadia. Now, HMCS Acadia still exists. It's still tied up alongside in Halifax. It was the guard ship for the harbor, and they would have been uh, raising flags to uh, indicate the nets are now open or later on the nets are now closed. So the guard ship hoists a signal indicating to vessels that the um, that the uh, the nets are now down and uh, this this incident obviously is extraordinarily serious it's still very much remembered here and as we're going to discuss down in Boston a lot of other places offered aid to Halifax during this time but the Acadia still being alongside having been saved because of this part of her history and her everything else she did in her lifetime today in Halifax she'll be raising those same signals 105 years on as a part of the memorial to what happened at the Halifax explosion. So HMCS Acadia at approximately 7.30 in the morning raises uh, her signal indicating that the nets are down. So everything then starts to start to move around. The ship entered the Narrows. This is the IMO with her pilot, uh, William Hayes, on board, well above the harbour's speed limit in an attempt to make up for the delay experienced in loading her coal. So she's in the inner harbour. She wants to get out. She wants to get going. She's a Belgian relief ship. I'm sure there's an imperative to get those supplies to where she's going. But she, her captain, Captain um, From, decides that uh, the the best way to deal with this situation, the fact that you're delayed, is to speed through the harbour. Uh, like that's going to help you. In in a completely separate <laughs> but related connection, when we did the um, the clip around the world yacht race. If we were one second over the start line at the beginning, the Clipper Race Authority would uh, dock us 15 minutes for uh, at the end of that leg of the race, and that was deliberately because they were trying to impress upon you know none of us had done round the world races before. In my year that I did it, oh no, one guy, one guy, Iro uh, Laikinen uh, had had done a round the world race before, but no one else had. So they knew from experience that there might be an imperative for lots of young men and it was all young men on my uh the year that i did it to suddenly like get involved in some like racing start like like that's important when you're racing three and a half thousand miles but it's a kind of natural thing you feel like jesus let's get on our way here and unfortunately his decision was to go faster than than he needed to and the way i'm telling it you can tell it ends up being a pretty big factor in this the ship entered the narrows, as we say, well above the speed limit in attempt to make up for the uh, delay in loading her coal. 
the IMO first meets the American uh, tramp steamer, the SS Clara, which is being piloted up the wrong side of the harbor. So now we're going to look from above at this chart and we're going to keep that in our minds through the rest of this description. And the chart is going to have a kind of big elongated figure of eight, which runs from north west to southeast. The exit from the harbor in our little diagram here is southeast. It's kind of like a, an hourglass laid on top of a, a normal compass rose here. We've got this big bulge out in that west and north uh, quarter, and we've got another bulge down to the south and east quarter. That's where we exit to the sea. To the northwest, it's closed off. That's Bedford Basin. And in the center of the compass rose, that's the narrow. So the uh, IMO is coming out of that northwestern uh, quadrant and she's making her way through the center of the, uh, the, the the port into the narrows and she meets first with the steamer that's coming up through the narrows but the steamer is being piloted along the um, southwestern the western quadrant of or the western side of the channel she essentially is on the port side of the channel now this does happen quite a lot it's not like this you know all responsibility lies with whoever was on that vessel but sometimes when a vessel's just left its berth it'd actually be complicated and difficult for it to cross to the other side of the channel and then depart out uh, if it's going into the inner basin then it's not that concerned really about what's going on with the nets it doesn't have the same imperative as the vessel that's trying to get out to get to see there's two different things going on so a quick jaunty nip down the western side of the uh, the port side of the channel to get into the basin to maybe anchor up or whatever has got a whole different feel to it than someone who's speeding out who normally would be themselves on the right hand side of the channel they're exiting so they'd be on the western side now the IMO with Captain From as he departs realizes, oh, I can't go hard up against the uh, the starboard side of the channel, the western side of the channel, because this tramp steamer, the Clara, is already on the western side. So what does he do? Well, he can't drive into the wall, so he takes a turn to port. Turn to port. That's always a problem. I hope everybody listening to this understands that you don't turn to port when you meet another vessel. You have three options. You can turn to starboard with a clear and unambiguous changing course of like 20 or 30 degrees to clearly show your intent, to clearly show your red side light to the other vessel, making them the uh, giveaway vessel. And um, the other option is you can go around in a circle. You make a turn to starboard, go around in a big circle. And when you come back to where you were, the situation will have changed. And it's probably a lot easier for you to deal with what's there next. I've used that so many times when I get, you get into that kind of like chicken situation. Do I go this way? Do I go that way? It's okay when you meet somebody on the sidewalk and you're making a left-right decision. But we all know how many times that can end up with you virtually like chest bumping a complete stranger on the, on the, on the, on the sidewalk. Um, in vessels, you have to make an immediate, clear, unambiguous choice. And the choices are turn to starboard, turn to starboard and a circle or stop. Okay, they're the only three options. So whenever anybody says uh, we're going to turn to port here, we know a big red flag. So we've got lots of little red flags. Now, a considerably larger red flag has been hoisted. The Clara is coming in. The Clara is on the western side of the channel. The IMO is expecting to be on the western side of the channel, her starboard side, but now she can't do that. So she turns to port and she leaves the Clara to starboard and the, the side of the channel beyond that. So she's got the Clara between her and the channel and she's somewhat in the center of this channel, which has got the name, the Narrows. Okay, so she's kind of where she didn't want to be. But, you know, there's a war on and she's late. 
So let's do it. Okay, so Imo meets the American tramp steamer Clara being piloted up the wrong side, the western side of the harbor. The pilots agreed to pass starboard to starboard. Okay, so a little bit unusual, but you can be done. It's not an issue. They pass starboard to starboard. Soon afterwards, the Imo was forced to head even further towards the Dartmouth shore to the eastern side onto the wrong side of the channel, the port side of the channel. She's forced even further to the port side of the channel after passing the tugboat Stella Maris, which was traveling up the harbor to the Bedford Basin near mid-channel, and she was towing a couple of schooners. At that point, there was um, still a lot of sailing trade, and a lot of them didn't have engines or certainly not engines that could drive them at any kind of speed against any kind of wind or current uh, at any kind of useful pace into the harbor. So they'd just be towed in. You have two or three together. So Stella Maris was towing right down the center of the channel inbound uh, some some uh, some uh, schooners, fishing schooners. And uh, the IMO now has had to wiggle to port to get past the Clara and then wiggle to port again to get past the Stella Maris. And uh, the captain, the Stella Maris, saw Imo approaching at excessive speed and ordered his ship closer to the western shore to avoid an accident. So this Belgian ship is coming out with Captain Fromm way too quickly. She's already had to make one bad decision, and a second bad decision, like two turns to port, this is not good, um, is now putting her onto the port side of the channel, and she's going at a speed then, which the tug captain recognized was way above the harbor limit, which was five knots. Francis McKay, an experienced harbour pilot, had boarded the Mont Blanc on the evening of 5th of December 1917. Mont Blanc is the French vessel outside, full of explosives and uh, wanting to get into the port to join this convoy. He had asked about special protections, such as a guard ship, given the Mont Blanc's cargo, but no protections were put in place. The Mont Blanc started moving at 7.30am on the 6th of December. That's about uh, an hour and a half ago, 105 years ago. And she was the second ship to enter the harbour as the submarine net between George's Island and Pier 21 opened for the morning. So Pier 21 is on the Halifax side, the western side of this uh, narrow channel. And George's Island is a, a narrowing element in the channel. It's, a, in, it's an island, obviously, but it's also a fort. And it's from there that the nets were uh, controlled. George's Island across to Pier 21 uh, on the uh, Halifax side and correspondingly another net on the other side I imagine going across to the Dartmouth side. Mont Blanc headed towards the Bedford Basin, the inner part of the harbour on the Dartmouth side of the harbour. She is coming down on the eastern side of the harbour. She's, If we look down on that compass rose again, she's coming in from the big uh, open uh, entrance to the harbour, the, the bulge in the southeastern quadrant. She's now coming down into the channel which is in the centre of our compass rose and she's trying to get to the north western quarter which is the bedford basin where she's going to form up and she's on the eastern side she's on the starboard side of the channel so she's exactly where she was meant to be now the pilot uh, mckay this is uh, francis mckay on board the mont blanc he's keeping his eye on things but let's just remember at this time it's 1917 they don't have vhf they don't have anything which is in any way showing them what's going on. They can see down the harbour and that's about it. Now, I know from Halifax Harbour, this time of year, it's not often foggy, but it's not exactly necessarily perfectly clear at 7.30 in the morning. You know, I had to get up this morning at uh, six o'clock with my son Isaac and uh, there's not much light here at 7.30 in the morning. It's just coming up and we've got this very narrow harbour. We've got the background of trees and probably a little bit of snow on the ground we know there's a blizzard coming i mentioned that earlier but there's probably snow on the ground anyway at that time the world was a lot cooler 
at that uh, point. We were going through a mini ice age in the 1800s. So we still weren't out of it by 1917. And so there's probably black and white things as a background. There's lights maybe on, maybe off. Um, and we've got to these two um, parts of the, the city, Halifax on one side and Dartmouth on the other side, and you're on your way in. So the pilot's doing whatever he can, but we all know what that's like when you're entering a harbour and you're kind of like trying to work out what's what exactly is in front of you. He's keeping his eye, though, on the ferry traffic between Halifax and Dartmouth and other small boats in the area. He first spots the IMO when she was about 1.2 kilometres away, just about three quarters of a mile away and became concerned as her path appeared to be heading towards his ship's starboard side. He's on the starboard side of the channel, and this other vessel, the IMO, has come out of the narrow, uh, come out of the Bedford Basin. It's dodged firstly around one vessel by going port to port with it, and then it's dodged around another vessel, port to port. It's now on the eastern side of the channel. It's now on the port side of the channel, and he's coming in on the same side of the channel like clearly you can start to see that there's some kind of a, a problem here like flags are being raised pretty damn quickly McKay sorry gives a short blast of his ship's whistle to indicate that he had the right of way um, I need to kind of like when you're in a narrow channel and you're passing like one blast on the whistle one blast on the whistle is always something to do with going to starboard. Two blasts on the whistle is always something to do with going to port. If it's got a long blast and then two shorts, that's overtaking to port on a narrow channel. Long blast and one short, then that's overtaking to starboard. So one blast on his whistle indicates that um, he is got, he's got the right of way. Uh, and this was met with two short blasts from the IMO, indicating the approaching vessel would not yield its position. <laughs> So <clears throat> let's have a think about this. So the IMO is in a situation where it's taken two choices of going port to port and it's now on completely the wrong side of the channel and it's going too fast or it's going faster than it should be going and a vessel coming towards it indicates, hey, I got the right of way and so they indicate, well, um, I'm not going to yield. Now, I'm not going to yield because what I physically can't, I can't go astern. I'm not going to yield because... Um, I don't want to slow down because I've decided that this little stretch of water in front of us is the most important part. If I can get out of this two mile stretch of water, then I will make up for the fact that I'm 24 hours late, which is not correct. But you can understand the human kind of feeling behind it. He was keen to get going where he was going. So the captain of the Mont Blanc then orders uh, the engines to be halted and uh, an angle slightly to starboard, closer to the Dartmouth side of the Narrows. So in that situation, what he's doing is He's showing his port aspect very clearly to this other vessel. He lets out another single blast of his whistle. And this is also a pilot-captain moment that we can discuss. You know, the pilot gets on board and the pilot then has the right to, uh, to navigate the ship. He has the con. He has the ability to give commands to the, 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 the helmsman, to the, the person in charge of the, uh, the, the throttles on the engines, and to take control of the ship. He doesn't he doesn't take responsibility for the vessel from the captain. The captain yields it and the captain can take it back. So the captain orders the engines to be stopped. He puts a little bit of a, a starboard turn in to, to show more of his um, port side to the oncoming vessel. And they again let out the single blast indicating, hey, we got the right of way here in this channel. And the other vessel, the IMO, gives them a double blast indicating I'm not going to yield. So now we've got a problem, right? Now we're in a very narrow um confined piece of water we've got a vessel going way too fast on the wrong side of the channel and unbeknownst to the guy that's speeding out the channel which in all fairness clearly if he'd known 
what was on board the uh, Mont Blanc, he would not have done what he'd done. He'd just slowed down or even just beached his vessel or whatever he had to do, but he'd got out of the way. But he didn't know that. Of course, this is how these things happen. Who knows what else was going on in his life? Who knows what else was going on in a wartime situation that's got somebody uh, just moving too fast and not thinking? Sailors on nearby ships heard the series of signals and realizing that a collision was imminent, gathered to watch as the IMO bore down on the Mont Blanc. Now I'm just going to read kind of what's going on here now in the um, in the uh, Wikipedia article because I don't want to get it wrong. I, I, I My history of this is that I, I kind of knew about the Halifax explosion until I actually went and started going to Halifax regularly and you see the memorials and you hear more of the stories. And then um, my partner's mother gave me a fantastic article to read the other day, which is called The Flying Sailor, which I'm going to come to in the end. But this part right here now is not something that I know particularly. I've looked at lots of videos and I would strongly advise uh, for people listening to this podcast who are mariners, there's a, a YouTube channel called Casual Navigation. Um, he does these kind of um, computer animations of things. And for us and our kind of like view on the sea, it's a fantastic way to understand what happened here. It's not um, dramatic. It's it's just this is what happened. And so we can understand it. But I think as I go into this, bit, I'm just going to kind of read it. So I stay exactly on, on track with what's happening. So the sailors start to come together, as anybody would, to look down uh, or look rather on this situation as the IMO bears down on the Mont Blanc. Both ships had cut their engines by this point, but the momentum carried them towards each other at slow speed. It's not possible at this point uh, to just start up engines in reverse. We all know this with big ships and, you know, it still is a big part of the pilot's work today. They will know how many stops and starts they've got when a big ship puts itself into reverse. It's not a gearbox. It's not just, you know, (laughs) selecting reverse like on a selector between the seats. Um, The whole engine has to be stopped and then the whole engine has to be put into reverse. And if you've got something like these big boxster, um, uh, uh, what are they called now? Triple expansion engines, like the ones that we've seen images of from the, the Titanic, these massive conrods going up and down like 20, 30 feet high. Um, to get all of that lot stopped and then put it into reverse, the reversing process is often occurs because they have compressed gas stored on board. I don't know back in this time, it must have been. Compressed gas then pushes the cylinders in the opposite direction and gets the engine going in reverse. For modern pilots, this is, I say, is a big part of their skill set because they've only got a certain number of stops and starts with the available compressed gas, which means that um, if they make a mistake and they do too many maneuvers, too many stop-start-reverse maneuvers coming into port, I've seen in Hong Kong images of they just didn't have any stops left and the, 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 the ship just runs into the dock. So it's not like you can just throw it into reverse. It doesn't work. And even with a big ship, if you did throw it into reverse, it's not going to stop that quickly. So the engines are now stopped and they are just uh, momentum is taking them forwards. And that works for um, that works for small boats as well. You know, bear in mind, if you're new to driving your boat around in the marina or in these difficult situations, when you put it in neutral, you haven't stopped it. You've just stopped it going forward at the speed it was going at. You still momentum is taking you forward. So you haven't you've you slowed what's happening, but you're not in any way um, changing what's happening. The detail which I caught from the casual navigation YouTube channel, which was very good because it's taken from a um, uh, a mariner's point of view, is that the um, the outbound vessel, the IMO, uh, its its um, aspect ratio is a very long, thin ship, so it had uh, a difficulty turning. Essentially, it's it's like trying to you know take a 
piece of plywood on its side and then change its direction in the water or getting a long keel boat and changing its direction quickly in the water it doesn't like pivot on a point there's a turning radius and you can't go inside that so the captain may have already realized at this point um, this is captain from on the imo outbound the one that's making all the mistakes here unfortunately um, he may have realized like okay now we've gone beyond the bit where i can do anything to get out of this i have made a mistake so let's have a see um, they both cut their engines the momentum carried them forwards unable to ground his ship for fear of a shock that would set off his explosive cargo remember the the kind of things that they're carrying on these vessels they're, they're at a point of time in 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 the world where a lot of this explosive stuff was also very unstable so now if you had ammunition on board a vessel as long as you don't rip the, the ship to pieces grounding it on the on the sandbank at the side of the harbor is not going to do anything to it but things like tnt back in the day you know one big drop that was is always a trope in like the old western films and what have you know and the 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 what's it the um nitroglycerin like if they if they shake it too much it's going to explode well he was already thinking that the captain lemadec on board the mont blanc like i can't beach this thing to get out of the way we're just gonna have to sit here and hope to god it's not too bad can you imagine what that would have felt like jesus um okay mckay who's the um who's the pilot on the Mont Blanc inbound. Um, he orders the Mont Blanc to steer hard to port with the starboard helm and crossing the bow of the IMO in a last second bid to avoid collision. The two ships were almost parallel to each other when the IMO suddenly sent out three blasts. Now what's three blasts? Three blasts is I am going astern. Now I was just doing this on a, on a video edit I had to do recently um, coming out of the marina in the UK we all know the concept of prop walk. So if you've got a propeller which is um, relatively close to the surface, then it's going to suck down air and it's going to cavitate more easily because it's slightly shallower than the bottom of the propeller. So we have prop walk. But when you've got ships which are in ballast and don't have very much uh, um, uh, weight on board and they are running along with their waterline high out of the water, that means their propeller is considerably closer to the surface, if not somewhat out of the water. So immediately we can see that if one of these vessels goes astern, its prop walk is going to have a pretty major effect on what's going on. And uh, given the series of things which have happened already, I think you can start to understand what's going to happen. The combination of the cargoless ship's height in the water, this is the IMO, uh, and the transverse thrust of her right-handed propeller caused the ship's head to swing into the Mont Blanc. Imo's prow pushed into the number one hold of the Mont Blanc on her starboard side. So the right-handed propeller, uh, when it's going forwards, it's turning in a clockwise direction viewed from astern. When it's going reverse, it's going in left hand, an anti-clockwise direction, and it is dragging the back of the boat to port, which then swings the bow of the boat to starboard. Now, if we can get a, a bit of a, an image in our heads for a second, we're on board the bridge of the IMO. It's already wiggled once to port to go around one vessel. It's gone wiggled to port again to go around a second vessel. It's then met a vessel inbound, which is legitimately on the starboard side of the channel, and it has it's they're so far over to the um, the wrong side of the channel now that we've got a situation where the IMO is going to go aground on the land which is to her port so when she goes astern and her starboard and her, her right-handed propeller goes into reverse it's going to kick the stern to port and swing the bow to starboard so this is an effect this is the captain trying to not 
uh, beach his ship. This is him trying to get out of the situation that he got into. He's cargoless. He doesn't have anything on board. There's no great issue here for him if he slows down or what have you. Their ships are almost parallel. There is no reason to go astern apart from to save his own vessel. Now, that's that's 2020 history lesson sort of vision speaking, right? That's being able to look back and say, well, if he'd just gone on and had beached the vessel, then this wouldn't have happened. But he's not to know that at the time, is he? But he got ended up in a situation where he keeps making essentially selfish decisions. I'm just going to speed out the harbor. Don't worry about the harbor speed. He's going to make a decision. Oh, I'll just go a little bit more towards the center of the channel. Oh, okay, I'll take this guy port to port as well. Now I'm on the wrong side of the channel. Okay, well, I've got so close to this other vessel. I've stood on when I'm a giveaway vessel. But now we're parallel and there's a bit of a risk for me of going onto the shoals. Well, I'm just going to do what I need to do. And that kick astern swings his bow into the starboard side of the vessel loaded with thousands of tons of explosive materials. The collision occurred at 8.45 a.m., which as I look at my clock now is, uh, we're about 40 minutes into this, so that's about you know, 50, 60 minutes ago, 105 years ago. The damage to the Mont Blanc was not severe, okay? So initially, this, again, on the bridge of the IMO, having made all these bad decisions, they're going like, oh, Jesus, we made contact. Like, we all know what that feels like, right? Ah, damn, you're coming into the marina or something, you scuff someone, hopefully just bounce off their fenders or what have you, but it's made contact, but it doesn't look too serious, but he's making contact with a vessel which has got toluene and benzyl on deck in casks. And these casks are uh, toppled and broken open by this impact. The flooded deck, they flooded the deck with benzol that quickly flowed into the hold. The IMO's engines kicked in and she disengaged. So she's going astern, she pivots, but then having made contact, she starts to back up out of there and she disengages her bow which created sparks inside the Mont Blanc's hull. She extracted her prow out of the side, the starboard side of the hull, cargo, I think it's cargo area number one I read somewhere else, and that this toluene and this benzol is running down all over the decks and it ignites because of the sparks because it disengages, okay? So they ignited the vapors from the benzol. A fire started at the waterline and traveled quickly up the side of the ship surrounded by thick black smoke and fearing she would explode almost immediately the captain ordered the crew to abandon ship a growing number of halifax citizens gathered on the street or stood at the windows of their homes or businesses to watch the spectacular fire okay remember how close these uh, these buildings are to the uh, shore and how side how close each sides of the shore are to each other Okay, the frantic crew of the Mont Blanc shouted from their two lifeboats to some of the other vessels that their ship was about to explode, but they could not be heard above the noise and confusion. As the lifeboats made their way across the harbour to the Dartmouth shore, the abandoned ship continued to drift and beached itself at Pier 6 near the foot of Richmond Street in Halifax. So she drifts across to the side, the Halifax side of the river, uh, sorry, of the, of the narrows of the channel, and she's now beached up on one side towing two scows at the time of the collision so this is the uh, the Stella Maris it probably it says scows hmm. I don't know if that's true I thought they were schooners but re- re- they're towing towing two vessels the Stella Maris responds immediately to the fire anchoring the barges oh they're barges okay and steams back towards Pier 6 to spray the burning ship with their fire hose brilliant fantastic the tug's captain Horatio H. Brannan and his crew realized that the fire was too intense for their single hose 
and backed off from the burning Mont Blanc. They were approached by a whaler from HMS Highflyer and later a steam pinnace belonging to the HMS Naobi. Captain Brannan and Albert Matteson of Naobi agreed to secure a line to the French ships to Mont Blanc's stern so as to pull it away from the pier to avoid setting it on fire. The 5-inch 125mm hawser initially produced was uh, deemed too small and orders for a 10-inch or 250mm hawser came down. It was at this point that the blast occurred. So what have we got here? We've got a ship outbound. It makes bad decisions. It makes contact with another ship. It's minor, but it starts a fire on board the ship. And the ship, which has got all of this explosive stuff on board, its crew gets off quickly enough and starts trying to tell everybody, hey, 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 there's a big problem here. This thing's going to explode. That ship drifts right up alongside the um, the city, which, as we said earlier on, is made of wood and now has all of these people standing in the windows looking at the fire and the damaged ships in this super narrow uh, part of the harbour. They try and tow it. They don't have a big enough hawser on board. 125 mil hawser back in the day made of hemp was not going to be enough for a tug to pull something off. So they try and get a 10-inch hawser. Can you imagine how long that would have get taken to get connected? And you have to get on board the ship and all this. But at that point, the blast occurs. At 9.04 and 35 seconds, the out-of-control fire on board the Mont Blanc set off her cargo of high explosives. The ship was completely blown apart and a powerful blast wave radiated away from the explosion initially at more than 1,000 meters or 3,300 feet per second. Temperatures of 5,000 degrees Celsius or 9,000 Fahrenheit and pressures of thousands of atmospheres accompanied the moment of detonation at the center of the explosion, which was right alongside downtown Halifax with all these people stood in the windows and stood, no doubt, on the side of the harbor watching what was going on. White hot shards of iron fell down upon Halifax and Dartmouth. The Mont Blanc's forward 90 mil gun landed approximately 5.6 kilometers or three and a half miles north of the explosion site near Albro Lake in Dartmouth while its barrel melted away. The shank of the Mont Blanc's anchor weighing half a ton landed 3.2 kilometers or two miles south at Armdale. A cloud of white smoke rose to at least 3,600 meters or 11,800 feet. The blast was felt as far away as Cape Breton 207 kilometers or 129 miles away and Prince Edward Island which is 180 kilometers or 110 miles away so where I am right now sitting about 110 kilometers away this would have been a major event that would have happened you know inside of the last hour a massive bang coming from the north a massive pyroclastic cloud going up into the sky and I was just sitting here going what on earth was that at this time just getting to Halifax by car would be the quickest way or trains but still it would be hours to travel up there now of course it's an hour in the car but this was quite a long way away and uh, suddenly you realize jeepers something has really gone down here an area of over 1.6 square kilometers or 400 acres was completely destroyed by the explosion and that area was the center of the city that 1.6 square kilometers that 400 acres is the major provincial city of the province of Nova Scotia. The harbour floor was momentarily exposed by the volume of water that was displaced and a tsunami was formed by that water surging in to fill the void. It rose as high as 18 metres or 60 
feet above the high water mark on the Halifax side of the harbour. The vessel IMO, which is this Belgian relief ship, the one that, in my opinion, has made all of the issues here, was carried onto the shore. It was just blown onto the shore on the Dartmouth side, uh, where it was kind of heading anyway um, by this uh, tsunami. The blast killed all but one on the whaler, everyone on the pinnace, and 21 of the 26 men on the Stella Maris. She ended up on the Dartmouth shore, severely damaged. The captain's son, the first mate, Walter Brannan, who had been thrown into the hold by the blast, survived, as did four others, thank God. All but one of the Mont Blanc crew members survived, okay, because they were off the vessel. I guess, again, thinking about human nature, they were the ones that knew what was on there, right? And they were getting the hell away from it. Over 1,600 people were killed instantly, and 9,000 were injured, more than 300 of whom died later. Every building within 2.6 kilometers or 1.6 mile radius and over 12,000 in total were destroyed or badly damaged. And I know Halifax, you know, it's all clustered right around that narrow section. It's the obvious place to have the city and everything. All these wood-built buildings gone. Hundreds of people who had been watching the fire from their homes were blinded when the blast wave shattered the windows in front of them, overturned stoves and lamps, started fires throughout Halifax particularly in the North End, where entire city blocks burned out, trapping residents inside their houses. Firefighter Billy Wells was thrown away from the explosion and his clothes, torn from his body, described the devastation survivors, survivors faced. The sight was awful, with people hanging out of the windows, dead. Some with their heads missing, sorry to put that in there if you're just listening to this casually, and some thrown into the overhead telegraph wires. He was the only member of the eight-man crew of the fire engine Patricia to survive. Large brick and stone factories near Pier 6, such as the Acadia Sugar Refinery, disappeared into unrecognisable heaps of rubble, killing most of the workers. And Nova Scotia Cotton Mill, located 1.5 kilometres or just under a mile from the blast, was destroyed by fire and the collapse of its concrete floors. The Royal Naval College of Canada building was badly damaged and several cadets and instructors maimed. And Richard the Richmond railway yards and station were destroyed, killing 55 railway workers and destroying and damaging over 500 railway cars. The North Street station, one of the busiest in Canada, was badly damaged. The death toll could have been worse had it not been for the self-sacrifice of the intercolonial railway dispatcher Patrick Vincent, or Vince Coleman, operating at the rail yard about 230 metres, 750 feet from Pier 6, where the explosion occurred. He and his co-worker, William Lovett, learned of the dangerous cargo aboard the burning Mont Blanc from a sailor and began to flee. But Coleman remembered that an incoming passenger chain from St. John's, New Brunswick, was due to arrive at the railway yard within minutes. So he returned to his post alone and continued to send out urgent telegraph messages to stop the train. Ugh, several variations of the message have been reported. <sighs> Sorry, I just had to stop there for a second. I've not read this before. I knew that there was something about the uh, a railway dispatcher, but uh, <laughs> listen to this. Several variations of the message had been reported, among them this from the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. Hold up the train, ammunition ship afire in harbour, making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. <sighs> Coleman's message was responsible for saving the lives of all the people on those trains. About 300 
railway passengers. Coleman was killed at his post. Humans, hey, they are the best and the worst. Rescue efforts. First rescue efforts came from surviving neighbours and co-workers who pulled and dug out victims from buildings. The initial informal response was soon joined by surviving policemen, firefighters and military personnel who began to arrive, as did anyone with a working vehicle. Cars, trucks and delivery wagons of all kinds were enlisted to collect the wounded. A flood of victims soon began to arrive at the city's hospitals, which were quickly overwhelmed. The new military hospital at Camp Hill admitted approximately 1,400 victims on the 6th of December. Firefighters were among the first to respond to the disaster, rushing to the Mont Blanc to attempt to extinguish the blaze before the explosion even occurred. They also played a role after the blast, with fire companies arriving to assist from across Halifax, and by the end of the day, from as far away as Amherst, Nova Scotia, which is about 200 kilometres or 120 miles away, um, and from Moncton, New Brunswick, which is 260 kilometres or 160 miles, and they came on relief trains. Halifax Fire Department's West Street Station Number 2 was the first to arrive at Pier 6 with the crew of the Patricia, the first motorised fire engine in Canada. In the final moments before the explosion, hoses were being unrolled as the fire spread to the docks. Nine members of the Halifax Fire Department lost their lives performing their duty. Okay, let's um, let's not get too dragged down into... Um, the exact details of this. I think we could really pull ourselves down. We are here as mariners trying to understand what happened in the harbour. This is an unbelievable document to read. Um, and the let, let's move down a little bit. The, the exact number of killed by the disaster is unknown. The Halifax Explosion Remembrance Book, an official database of the Nova Scotia archives, identifies 1,782 victims. As many as 1,600 people died immediately in the blast tsunami and the collapse of buildings the last body a caretaker killed at the exhibition grounds was not recovered until the summer of 1919 in addition 9,000 were injured 1,630 homes were destroyed in the explosion and fires and another 12,000 damaged roughly 6,000 people were left homeless and 25,000 had insufficient shelter okay the problem then that comes along, and I'm not going to continue on down this a little bit too much more, but um, uh, a blizzard then came in. A blizzard came in and uh, just massively hampered all of the rescue efforts. Um, but the the response from all around the province of Nova Scotia, as you can imagine, the nearby provinces of uh, New Brunswick and uh, PEI and Labrador and Newfoundland, they, uh, they all immediately, of course, stepped up with whatever they could. And a little bit further afield, the city of Boston uh, came through in a big way, sending medical resources, personnel, supplies, blankets, all this kind of stuff. And still to the day, um, the city of Halifax sends a Christmas tree to the city of Boston as a thank you, as an immortal thank you for all of the help that they provide provided during this, uh, this incredible uh, disaster. So, okay, let's let's try and get out of the... The worst of it and try and understand now the investigation and the reconstruction of it this uh, there's a lot you'll find online all about like how bad it was how awful it was and i don't want to take anything away from that but there's another story which kind of happened thereafter and uh, i think there's more in that for us so 
the investigation, many people in Halifax first thought the explosion was the result of a German attack, which was pretty understandable because everything that was going on in the harbour was all about the war. They've got these ships in, they've got these um, these uh, nets, they've got goodness knows what going on. Of course, news just didn't travel in the way that it does now. The major method of sending news would be the telegraph, but who's got access to that in the house or the newspapers? So suddenly some things happened but you don't know what, and they're just all, you know, trying to trying to deal with it on a on a on a person to person basis. The local newspaper, the Halifax Herald, continued to propagate this belief for some time. For example, reporting that Germans had mocked the victims of the explosion, while John Jonasson, the Norwegian helmsman of the IMO, was being treated for serious injuries sustained during the explosion. It was reported to the military police that he had been behaving suspiciously. Johansson was arrested on suspicion of being a German spy when a search turned up a letter on his person, supposedly written in German. It turned out the letter was actually written in Norwegian. Immediately following the explosion, most of the German survivors in Halifax had been rounded up and imprisoned. Eventually, the fear dissipated as the real cause of the explosion became known, although rumours of German involvement persisted. I've not read that before. I'm glad I've, I've, glad I've stepped in and, and started to read this uh, wiki thing, because uh, everything I looked at was all about the actual, you know, the ramifications of this, but uh, it's good to know the entire story. A judicial inquiry known as the REC Commissioner's Inquiry was formed to investigate the causes of the collision. Proceedings began at the Halifax Courthouse on the 13th of December 1917, presided over by Justice Arthur Drysdell. The inquiry's report on the 4th of February 1918 blamed the Mont Blanc's captain, Ami Lemadec, the ship's pilot, Francis McKay and Commander F. Evan Wyatt, the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of the harbour, the gates and the anti-submarine defences for causing the collision. Hang on, what? The inquiry's report of the 4th of February blamed the Mont Blanc's captain. What did he do wrong? Hang on, hang on, hang on. The Mont Blanc's captain, let's think back. So he's coming in from the sea. He's been delayed. He's coming down the starboard side of the channel. He sees the IMO on his side of the channel. He blows his whistle once to indicate that he has the right of way and gets two whistle blasts in return. He doesn't want to ground it out because he's got a dangerous cargo on board. He is allowed to be inside the harbour with that cargo. <clears throat> no one says that he's speeding. How on earth is he wrong? Okay, we've got to keep reading. Um, uh, I've got to find my place now in the in the article. Okay, the uh, the the REC Commissioner L.A. Demers' opinion was that the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs, given her cargo. What? How can that be? That's not logical at all. It's about as logical as rounding up all the Germans and imprisoning them. So the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to avoid she... Uh, hang on, the I can't even say it. I'm so like bowled over. The Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs. Okay, he was likely influenced by local opinion, which was strongly uh, anti-French, as well as by the street fighter style of argumentation used by the IMO lawyer... Charles Birchall. According to the Crown Council, W.A. Henry, this was a great surprise to most people who had expected the IMO to be blamed for being on the wrong side of the channel. All three men, that's the captain of the, I'm, uh, the, sorry, the, captain of the Mont Blanc, the pilot of the Mont Blanc, and commander, the commander of the Acadia, which was the guard ship in charge of the harbour, all three men were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence at a preliminary hearing 
Oh my goodness, and bound over for trial, a Nova Scotia Supreme Court Justice, Benjamin Russell, found there was no evidence to support these charges. Thank God. McKay, who was the pilot, was discharged on a writ of habeas corpus, and the charges dropped. Because the pilot and the captain were arrested on the same warrant, the charges against Limadec were also dismissed. On the 17th of April 1918, a jury acquitted Wyatt in a trial that lasted less than a day. So Wyatt, which was he, he was Commander F. Evan Wyatt, the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of the harbour, gates and anti-submarine defences. Okay, Drysdale also oversaw the first civil litigation trial in which the owners of the two ships sought damages from each other. His decision on the 27th of April 1918 found Mont Blanc entirely at fault. What? This guy Drysdale is an idiot. Subsequent appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Committee at the Privy Council in London determined that Mont Blanc and IMO were equally to blame for navigational errors that led to the collision. What? No party was ever convicted for any crime or otherwise successfully prosecuted for any actions that precipitated the disaster. Good Lord. I, d I do not understand that. I do not understand that. I don't even understand how they can say it's 50% on the on the Mont Blanc what she meant to do like <laughs> there comes a point where you just can't avoid being involved in an accident with somebody they just they just want it so badly they keep making all the decisions that lead to it so well okay here we go reconstruction efforts began shortly after the explosion to clear the debris repair the buildings and establish temporary housing for survivors left homeless by the explosion by late January 1918 around 5,000 were still without shelter and I gotta tell you it's a bloody cold part of the world you do not want to be somewhere without shelter in Nova Scotia particularly not in the early part of the 20th century it's a lot colder than it is now a reconstruction committee under Colonel Robert Lowe uh, constructed 832 new housing units which were furnished by the Massachusetts Halifax Relief Fund. Partial train service resumed from a temporary rail terminal. Okay, blah, 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 we understand this. Okay, this is reconstruction of the city. I thought it might be reconstruction of the accident. Um, every building in the Halifax dockyard required some degree of rebuilding as did HMCS Niobe and the docks themselves. All of the Royal Canadian Navy's minesweepers and patrol boats were undamaged. Okay, Okay, so um, legacy. The Halifax explosion was one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions. An extensive comparison of 130 major explosions by the Halifax historian Jay White in 1994 concluded that it remains unchallenged in overall magnitude as long as five criteria are considered together. The number of casualties, the force of the blast, the radius of devastation, the quantity of explosive material, and the total value of property destroyed. For many years afterward, the Halifax explosion was the standard by which all large blasts were measured. For instance, in its report on the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Time magazine wrote that the explosive power of the little boy bomb was seven times that of the Halifax explosion. The many eye injuries resulting from the disaster led to better understanding of how to care for damaged eyes, and with the recently formed Canadian National Institute for the Blind, Halifax became internationally known as a centre for care for the blind, according to the Dalhousie University professor, Victoria Allen. The lack of coordinated pediatric care in such a disaster was also noted by William Ladd, a surgeon from Boston who had arrived to help. His insights from the explosion are generally credited with inspiring him to pioneer the speciality of pediatric surgery in North America. The Halifax explosion also inspired a series of health reforms, including around public sanitation 
and maternity care. The event was traumatic for the whole surviving community, so the memory was largely suppressed. After the first anniversary, the city stopped commemorating the explosion for decades. The second official commemoration did not take place before the 50th anniversary in 1967, and even after that, the activities stopped again. Construction began in 1964 on the Halifax North Memorial Library, designed to commemorate the victims of the explosion. The library entrance featured the first monument built to mark the explosion, the Halifax Explosion Memorial Sculpture, created by artist Geordie Bonnet. The sculpture was dismantled by the Halifax Regional Municipality in 2004. Okay. Um, yeah, I think we're... Uh, and they talk here at the fact that, uh, yeah, the, the Christmas tree, um, the um, balsam Christmas trees, like this part of the world, um, Halifax and Lunenburg County, where I live, is like the, the center, the epicenter of Christmas trees around the world. And it says, in 1918, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help that the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts Public Safety Committee provided immediately after the disaster. The gift was revived in 71 by the Lunenburg County Christmas Tree Producers Association, which began an annual donation of a large tree to promote Christmas tree exports, uh, as well as acknowledge Boston's support after the explosion. The gift was later taken over by the Nova Scotia government to continue the goodwill gesture, as well as to promote trade and tourism. The tree is Boston's official Christmas tree and it is lit on Boston Common throughout the holiday season. In deference to its symbolic importance for both cities, the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources has specific guidelines for selecting the tree and has tasked an employee to oversee the selection. Well, that ended up on the, the not important at all list, isn't it? Okay, and the one person is tasked to oversee the selection. Good show. Well, look, I think the uh, here we, I, I, there's a couple of images over to one side here um I, I think then i've got to go and have a look at them there's a piece of the anchor stock of the mont Blanc. i'm looking at an image of it here now i think it's down by armdale and it says uh, the december 6th 1917 ex halifax explosion hurled this 1140 pound anchor shaft 2.35 miles from the ss mont blanc to this park well, it's lucky it landed right in the middle of the park that's good Look, it's, uh, it's an unbelievable story. And I, I, I'm really struggling now to understand how on earth they put it down to, um, to, to both uh, parties. I, I, I don't understand that. Could that be to do with the nationality of the owners of the ship? Norwegians, they're, they're uh, neutral during the war. And then uh, Belgian relief, they're involved in the fighting. And then the French, the British never liked the French. But, you know, it's, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And it starts with such a simple thing. So... As we come into an hour long on this podcast, if you've not heard of the Halifax explosion before, then I would say go and have a look at uh, what you can see on um, YouTube and, and the like. But uh, of course, the the History Guy is another great uh, YouTube channel. He's got something about the Halifax explosion, which is more based in um, imagery. And uh, that's a, a good look at any time. The History Guy on YouTube is a brilliant history channel. Um, but for the Mariners, the Casual Navigation channel um, is, uh, is a great way to look down on this from above and kind of understand exactly what happened. But uh, to me, it just does not seem possible that uh, the vessel which keeps to its side of the channel, which signals its intentions, which takes all possible uh, actions to get out the way of the other and is not speeding, has got 50% of the responsibility and told to stay out of the way of all collisions when another vessel is going too fast, has turned to port twice to avoid other people, then cuts its engines when they're parallel and then goes astern and twists its bow 
onto the other vessel. I don't know how that can be, but uh, there you go. It's it's too far in the past now to change, so it just is what it is. But um, for us as sailors, you know, I don't think we necessarily have to worry about this kind of uh, degree, but we should always be thinking about our actions and thinking ahead. Don't be like the captain of the IMO and get too caught up in what's your own personal uh, thing that you're trying to achieve in that moment, I've got to get out this marina because I said I'd be back by 10. I've got to get this thing parked because I told my wife I'd be there for dinner. I can't, you know, I can't, I, I don't think I can get around this headland. But if I do get around the headland, I'll shave an hour off. So I'll just keep beating and maybe I'll make my way around. Or, you know, it. there's no there's no time for that on the ocean. You've got to do the right thing. Otherwise, as um, uh, Conrad said, uh, the sea will exact the full penalty for any mistakes made. So... Let's move towards the end of this podcast. And I think the best way of doing that after such a serious uh, subject matter is to just uh, look at the little ray of light, which is a little film called The Flying Sailor, which has been released this year, 2022. It's been um, created by Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, and it follows a fictional character um, who is walking alongside the harbor when the two vessels come together, the IMO and the Mont Blanc. And uh, then he gets <laughs> he gets sent skywards and uh, ends up on what they describe as an existential journey of self contemplation and realization. Now it's uh, it's fictional, but uh, they say here on the write up in the New Yorker that in the early two thousands, Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, two animators and directors from Alberta, Canada, visited Halifax and toured the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. At some point, they encountered a story, perhaps embellished over time about an English sailor who'd been launched skyward during the blast. He was very lucky to have not been clobbered by debris, Tilby said, and somehow landed safely uphill in one piece. Intrigued by his near-death experience, Forbes and Tilly animated The Flying Sailor, a seven-minute film that imagines what it might have been like to live through such a disastrous few moments. So there's something there to be taken from this. It's a little bit of an upbeat thing. The Flying Sailor, a little animated film. So he's been doing the rounds and uh, winning all sorts of uh, awards, which is uh, fantastic. It says that elements of the film are light. A comically shaped man flies nude through the sky. But its purpose is a serious one. Reframing death as something to consider without overwhelming fear or dread. Like the catastrophic fates of the SS IMO and SS Mont Blanc, which led to the loss of thousands of lives and a whole city, life is full of collisions, Tilby said, and they all have impact down the road. Hmm, Very true. Small decisions made on the bridge of a vessel 105 years ago lead to everything that we've been discussing. So... There's something there that's a little bit lighter out of it. I think the fact that so many beneficial things came from it is very, very good. We know that with the um, the sinking of the Titanic, although it was such a massive loss of life, the safety of life at sea regulations came out of it. Um, so that's a, a beneficial thing. Um, it does seem in Halifax like they kind of just, it was just too painful to think about um, for a very long time, even to the, the 60s, it sounds like, where they got their second memorial to it. So I've been learning as I've been going through this as well. But um, down the road, as uh, the animator here, Tilby says, um, all these things have impact. So make good decisions. It's all you can do. And if you get a sense that a red, if you ever get that feeling on a boat, like I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's the point at which you don't do that thing. It's always better to be late than not arrive at all. And uh, certainly in this situation, it's uh, small, small decisions have had a massive impact. So 
There we go, that's the Halifax explosion, um, 105 years ago to the to the moment almost uh, at 11 a.m. 105 years ago, they were dealing with whatever had just happened. These things blew up um, an hour ago. I've been editing and kind of changing things as I've been going through this podcast, you might imagine. But the start of the podcast uh, was a, just a couple minutes uh, to the to the moment uh, for 105 years on from that explosion. Now, as I sit here looking at the clock, it's two hours after that explosion. Can you imagine? what exactly is going on everything's on fire it's freezing cold no one it's i saw some of the newspaper articles Twenty thousand people uh displaced from their homes thousands dead like it brings out the very best and the very worst of humans and uh yeah we we've, we've got to make sure that the decisions we make at all moments at all times are, are the best possible ones we can because we don't know what the impact's going to be down the road so stay to your own side of the channel that's the <laughs> This is the biggest ever sledgehammer lesson in uh, collision regulations. Stay on the starboard side of the channel. You better have a bloody good reason for going to port. So, okay, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com. If you've listened all the way through this podcast, you'll recognize that uh, there's a lot of effort goes into these. That $5 a month added together really helps. And now I'm not doing the sailing at sea thing anymore with the uh, with the public. I'm doing sailing, which is deliberately to create digital content for um, for YouTube, for Patreon, and for here on the podcast. So those $5 a month really, really add up. And if you want to get access to a load of other exclusive content, which exists only over on Patreon, then please do have a look at the options that are on the site. You can get uh, even your name on the side of the boat. We're going to go and do this uh, Around the World event in December of next year. A year from now, I'm going to be sitting in La Corona, uh, about ready to depart. I, I've been talking to the uh, race um, organizer for the Global Solo Challenge, and we're just trying to decide on an appropriate time for me to be departing and hoping that we can pick up some other open 60s that can depart with me. That would be even more exciting to set off with other people. But uh, I'm pretty excited about that. So watch this space. The next podcast will be coming out in uh, in just a couple of days. It's uh, Tuesday now, uh, the, the 6th of December. And we're going to be looking to get onto a regular schedule. We've spoken about this so many times before, but the Rare Nautical Reads podcast, which has just morphed into being the Mariner's Library, that is going out uh, Tuesday to Saturday and has been doing now for a couple of months. So I'm definitely on schedule with that. The Mariner YouTube channel has been putting things out pretty regularly, about two different, uh, one longer and one shorter video each week. So we're on that. I'm just trying to find the right cadence for this uh, main Mariner podcast, but I think it's going to be two or three times a week. So we'll be doing something um, in the next couple of days. I saw that there was a lot of interest and uh, a lot of take up on the last of the ABC for sailing ones we did H's for handling lines. They always seem very popular though, so I should probably uh, increase the frequency of those. <laughs> yeah, it's only taken us two years to get to H in the alphabet. Like even if I spared it up and got it finished in a year and twice as fast, it would. Uh, I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. So that's all I've got time for today. I shall be back with you on Thursday. And wherever you are today, whatever you're doing, please stay to the right-hand side of the channel at all times. I hope you are safe and sound because of it. And I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers.